Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This week on Forward... This destroys trust and expertise because when people look at this, like, okay, someone just said something, seemed to seem to have a reasonable point, and that person kind of lost their career for it. I'm not even sure you tell me what the truth was because the, all the incentives are on the side of say the thing that won't get you canceled. So I think that there's a an impetus on on restoring our K to 12 education to actually teach these principles of free speech and pluralism and why our inheritance is so profound and why it's so delicate and why it's our civic duty to uphold it. One of the best ways to really have a free speech culture is to work together to solve specific hard problems, not just a consciousness raise on the evil uh, evils of the world. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the podcast, back in Ricky's case, the co-authors of the brand new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, New York Post columnist and journalist Ricky Schlott, and the president of FIRE, which is the Foundation or Individual Rights and Expression, FIRE, Greg Lukianoff. Welcome, Ricky and Greg. Thanks so much. A big fan of yours. So glad to be back. Thank you. Yes. Uh, congratulations on this book. Uh, if, if someone looks closely, they will see that I have a blurb on this book, so you know I like it. <laughs> it's the first one on the hardcover. We put it right at the top. We were so proud to have your endorsement. Because it's a very, very important work. Um, but first, let's introduce or reintroduce people to who the heck you guys are. Um, so, Ricky, you are uh, a whole 23 years old, and yet you're now the co-author of this major book. And I dare say that in some ways you were set on this path by an interaction with cancel culture on your college campus. Yeah, actually, I mean, I, it goes back even to my high school campus. I was um, 15, I guess, in the 2016 election, and that was just – it just disintegrated my high school campus. And then again in college when I started to speak out about my own political beliefs – Yet again, um, definitely lost a lot of friends in the process. But also, I would say I have I have a glimmer of hope from that story as well, which I, I can I can save for later. But um, tell you a little bit about how I think that cancel culture can be kind of circumvented by by courage being contagious. But yes, indeed, cancel culture. I've I've known it since I was uh, but a shrimp in in high school. So <laughs> yeah, I mean it, that's one thing that Ricky likes to point out that I think is an excellent point is that we still have to deal with people who are trying to claim cancel culture isn't real or never even happened, which is just increasingly, I mean, it's been a ridiculous statement to make for a long time. Yeah. But 
uh, when you poll younger people about cancel culture, it's Generation Z that hates it the most because they grew up in it. They, they, they grew up not really trusting whether or not, you know, that confidence they, they, they told to their friends is going to make it onto TikTok. And next thing you know, their, their social lives are going to be ruined. So, Greg, this is your fourth book. Uh, people yep. who find the title of the book familiar uh, might recognize it from your work with Jonathan Haidt. The Coddling of the American Mind, which came out a number of years ago, talking about how we're uh, leading our young people to some very, very counterproductive beliefs, uh, which I thought was an excellent book. You guys Thank got you. a ton of acclaim for that book, and this is in many ways the sequel. So how did you and Ricky end up teaming up on this and collaborating? Um, you know, it, it's a it, it's a pretty di uh, direct story. Um, you know, uh, Ricky read Coddling. Um, she, uh, she was a fan of the book. Uh, she very also sensibly, when the lockdowns began in 2020, said, "This is stupid." Going to you know, as she says, going to Zoom college, paying six thousand dollars a class for Zoom college seemed seemed asinine. So she dropped out of NYU and started working for publications, including Reason Magazine, um, including the New York Post, and she was clearly like just a weirdly good writer for I, I want to like I'm tempted to say for her age I'm like no she's she's a good she's a great writer for any age so we made her a fellow at fire uh, as part of the research team and it didn't take long for me to realize wow like this is a very talented young woman um and I and I'm an overwriter. Like, I'm, I'm someone, and Height will make fun of me for this, too. Like, you know, you ask me 150 words, I'm like, here's 5,000. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, you got to boil it down. Um, so I felt like we made, like, a really great team. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write with Ricky, in addition to the fact that she's just a phenomenal writer and she's passionate about freedom of speech and she knows a lot about uh, cancel culture, was that so much of coddling of the American mind was about the harms we're inflicting on Gen Z young women. Um, so actually, and, but it was written by two Gen Xers, um, at, at me and Height. So having an opportunity to write with a young woman who could actually test the environment on, on the ground uh, seemed like a great opportunity. And then we got to work together, and I, thought, I think, just think we made a great team. Well, certainly uh, it, it shows in the pages. I mean, uh, you guys uh, certainly made a, a, a great team. Um, can you give people some background on FIRE, Greg? Oh, sure. Um, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, uh, we turned uh, from, uh, we used to be the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education up until Janu uh, June 6th of 2022. Um, we, we decided to expand um, uh, from just working on campuses to filing cases all over the country. We actually just filed one in, in favor of some animal rights activists um, yesterday. Like, uh, so so we, we have a you know, thriving litigation practice. Um, and you know now we deal. We have cases all over the country. We still have a special focus in higher education, including our campus free speech rankings, which anybody considering going to school should definitely look at, um, because you'll be surprised at how bad some of the most illustrious schools in the country are, and how good maybe in some cases schools you've never heard of actually do on a thirteen point factorial kind of examination of w whether or not the the free speech climate is good at that school. You, Ricky. How was your experience working with Greg? He sounds like a real pain in the butt in terms of uh, sending you super long passages and you're like, Greg, no one's going to read all this. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually we had, I, I was just reflecting, I had lunch with our book editor yesterday. I met him in person for the first time and I was just reflecting on the fact that somehow we went through this process, which must have been like a year and a half from start to yeah. finish. 
and did not have like a single moment of interpersonal tension in any meaningful way the entire way through, which is just incredible looking back. Um, but I think it was like a perfect pairing because Greg has all this wisdom and is, I mean, this breadth of knowledge and has been at fire for two decades and basically my lifetime and could bring all this knowledge to the table that I would never have had or been able to pull out of my brain in any way, shape or form. And so it was a really great partnership because I was able to help distill that and make it as succinct as possible. And, you know, coming from a place like the New York post where I'm writing 600 word op-eds, I'm, I'm an efficient writer and I know how to boil things down. And so it was, it was pretty perfect. Cause I got to work with this like wealth of knowledge. And sometimes he would just send me like a, a, a voice memo. I think like so much of the book was actually written basically from voice memo to like, okay, how do I make this work on a page? And it was, it was a really awesome process. And I think like I got to learn so much and, and pick his brain through the, the course of writing this book. And I feel like even, um, looking at the, where I was in the beginning and in the end, it was, it was such an amazing growing experience. And I read the book now, like I just did the audiobook, and I'm like, Oh, huh, that's pretty interesting. I kind of like forgot that that was even in there. So it's exciting to see how the final product. It was also great because she's a great reporter. Um, so when, when we were talking about individual cases, you know, she knows how to do a kick-ass interview. She knows how to get good questions out of people. Like, so like all, all of her, all of her skills. And then also just the additional insight of being, growing up in this. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I, I, I call myself like a temperamentally optimistic, but in a world that should make you somewhat pessimistic at the moment. Oh, it's a pretty good description. Um, you know, it is, it, it's, it's kind of the, uh, kind, of, kind of the way I feel about it. And generally I will point out to people that it's better to be alive today by a million different standards than it was, you know, because my dad was, born, okay, my dad was born in 1926 in Yugoslavia. His dad died when he was six. His life was a horror show, and I'm always aware of that. But would I trade growing up as a kid in the 80s and a teenager and young person in the 90s with Ricky growing up in the age of social media? Not a chance. So here's how I think the average American might think about cancel culture. Uh, hey, uh, occasionally people get canceled, but it's mainly uh, social media related. Uh, it's not maybe that big a deal. I find it uh, unlikable, uh, but it's not something I should be, you know, staying awake at night thinking about. Now, your book has a number of um, awesome contributions in it. Uh, it's a much more rigorous uh, cataloging, shall we say, uh, of cancel culture. It breaks it down, its impacts on different institutions. Ricky, you said that, hey, that a lot of this is still on campuses, which uh, I think is where most people think of it. So let's start mm -hmm. at campuses. <laughs> why, why are college campuses such a fertile ground for what we'd consider cancel culture? And for a moment for people, how would you define cancel culture? So I think that campuses are really fertile ground for cancel culture because you show up, you're young, you want to fit in, and oftentimes there's a very loud illiberal minority of students who are tying people's viewpoints to their their personal status or who they are as human beings and, and very indulgent in these ad hominem attacks and will attack people on social media. And when you're a kid that shows up and you're afraid of putting yourself out there and you think that, like I did, I was hiding books under my bed like Jordan Peterson and Thomas Sowell, you really feel as though you can't put yourself out there. And I learned the the kind of going off, jumping off the cliff and writing for the New York Post and saying, here are my viewpoints, and I think that free speech is a problem on campus, which was my first major op-ed. 
all the people around me felt the same way or the vast majority. I had people coming out of every crevice of, of roommates, of, um, deans of, of, uh, like to whole departments and professors that I had who would come to me quietly and say, Oh, I, I completely agree with you and good on you for writing about free speech on campus, but just don't tell anyone that we had this conversation. And so I think there's something about that highly ideological bubble that really lets this go awry and where those really aggressive loud people who tear people down who use bias response hotlines because the administration has just put this whole bureaucracy around cancel culture and basically indulging it it's it's the tyranny of the minority just goes crazy in real life in the same way that i think it does in social media and then in like the live action version on college campuses essentially so, Greg, how would you define cancel culture? Uh, it, it, it sounds like you have a, a technical definition. Yeah, I, I do. Have, I do it, Ben. This is the, one of the few times I'll sound like a lawyer, but I want to be precise about it. And it's the uptick beginning around 2014 and accelerating in 2017 uh, and after of campaigns to get people fired, disinvited, deplatformed, or otherwise punished for speech that is or would be protected by the First Amendment and the climate of fear and conformity that has resulted from this uptick. Um, because I'm trying to make clear that we're not talking about something that's strictly partisan, although the term cancel culture is oftentimes you know, something that uh, people will accuse the left of being guilty of, and, and certainly that's true to a large degree. Uh, but we also take on cancel culture from the right because what we saw after 2014, and it wasn't subtle, was just suddenly people were, rather than just being really embarrassed on, on Twitter or, or Facebook, they were losing their jobs um, for, you know, jokes that, that, that went viral, for example. Um, and on campus, uh, one of the reasons why it is just so frustrating that there are still people, you know, trying to claim this doesn't, this isn't happening. The uptick in professors getting canceled is unlike anything we've seen in the modern era of higher education. I mean, the law protecting academic freedom was, and, and free speech on campus wasn't really clear until about 1973. And there hasn't been a period like this in that entire time when this many professors are getting you know, fired, tenured professors in many cases, for what they say, what they print, uh, what, uh, what they, um, and having their research, uh, that getting them in trouble, and sometimes actually having it withdrawn, which is, which is usually considered an extraordinary measure. One of the goals of, of the piece was to, of the book, was to put it all in one place and, and try to give some historical comparisons. Like, when you talk about uh, sometimes people have no it, – it's very funny watching people who don't really know anything about the history of freedom of speech claim, oh, these are – you know, no, these are tiny numbers. These, it's, it's not significant. But when you're talking about over a 1,000 professors targeted you know, um, just in the last nine and a half years since cancel culture began, with about two-thirds of those punished, with, a, uh, with, with about one-fifth of those, about almost 200, fired, you're talking about numbers that blow away even things like the Red Scare, where, where the normal estimates about 100 professors – you know, were fired. And, and at the time, everyone knew the Red Scare was happening. Like that, 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 a lot of that research actually comes, it was contemporaneous with it. So it's been a, I try not to use this word too often, but it's been a, a, a crisis on campus. Um, and, and yeah, we point out when about, about a third of those punishments um, come from usually the off-campus right. And we call those out uh, as well. But I do want at the same time, I remember saying this to somebody uh, on, on social media. I'm like, well, but a, th a third of them come from conservatives. Like, but you're implying that the, the, the rest come from the left. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. You, you, yes, you don't do. think there's a free speech problem <laughs> on, on, on the left on campus? Like that, that's, that, that's just is willful blindness at this point.
Yeah, and I might add that on the on the right wing cancel culture um, kind of side of things, this is something that like I know I'm going to take a lot of flack for from some people that might otherwise um, like what I write about and stuff. But I have absolutely no problem calling out what I see as Ill, fighting illiberalism with illiberalism and fighting might with might in a really disturbing way because there's like a wide opening for for people and leaders to step in and say free speech has been largely abdicated as a, a major principle of the left and here we are going to actually step in and adopt that rather than fight that hot mess that's happening in the radical left wing with our own authoritarian hot mess on the right, which is just super disappointing to me. And I, I think that there's such a lack of a, a positive restorative roadmap to like, how, how can one, one side or no side, or just a group of people in the center or people who just are actually classical liberals reclaim those values. And it feels as though that's not a conversation that happens often enough. And it's like, Oh, we're the champions of free speech on the right. But then here are all our very authoritarian bills that actually curb free expression at the same time it's it gets my blood boiling this podcast is sponsored by helix sleep i've always been a mattress guy in that i knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something you should probably invest in doing it right that's why i love helix sleep which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I agree with you, Ricky. It's one thing I hope Ford can assist with is creating this middle zone because the the oppositional forces, uh, it's awful, you know. Like, uh, and people I know people. I mean, you write about them. Um, I know people who've been attacked by one side or the other. Let's say they get attacked by the left, and then they they look at it and say, "Okay, well, whoever is against you, I guess I'm now with." <laughs> that's yeah. even though it's like, wait a minute, I don't really want to be with those guys, uh, you know, and and that's. Um, really noxious. It's very dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous politically. It's dangerous culturally. So when you talk about these 200 professors who got fired, there was a particularly tragic story about a professor named Mike Adams in your book. And I have to say, when I read it, I was like, I, like I, I actually thought, wow, how had I not heard of this? Uh, but if you want to relate uh, the Mike Adams story, Greg. Yeah, uh, it's a little hard. Um, the uh... So I started FIRE in 2001, back when FIRE was tiny, and I was the first legal director at FIRE. Um, and one of the first professors I met 
was a professor who used to be a, a progressive um, criminology professor, but then he became an evangelical Christian and became the rarest kind of um, conservative on campus, which is a social conservative. A lot of people who call themselves conservatives on campus are more like libertarians. Um, and on 9-11, actually the day after 9-11, a student at, at UNCW, UNC Wilmington, uh, wrote something saying, America had it coming, basically. Like, this was totally our fault. Um, and the and, and he wrote back, she, she sent a, an email to the entire campus, and he wrote back to the entire campus saying, it's like, listen, um, you have every right to say this uh, just as, uh, 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 you know, bigoted and stupid thought is, it, like, is protected. He actually w w w was even a little more careful than that. But the school launched an investigation of Mike Adams for that, um, and it was, uh, you know, it was an early case. And I'd say, like, on, on the severity scale for my later career, it was maybe like a four out of ten. It just it wasn't that bad. But I was new to this, and I was horrified. Like, this is this is this, what he said was un, was so clearly protected by the First Amendment. So we became kind of friends over that case. And since you know, he he uh, and I introduced him to the works of Lenny Bruce which I live to regret a little bit because he would credit me sometimes when he's on the radio about reading Lenny Bruce is what, what made him decide to be, you know, more in your face. Like, um, and it's funny cause I'm, you know, I come from the left side of the spectrum. He, he comes from the right, but he was, he, he was a, a nice person um, that, that I got to know, but his style became very kind of like, you know, uh, calling out the libs kind of, kind of stuff. But it was also very jokey, which was something that like a previous era of people on the left were kind of like, yeah, like the, like the guy, like the gadfly, like that, that's, that's a role we, we used to understand having value. And so he had a long career, had to defend him a lot. But in 2020, he sent out a tweet uh, objecting to lockdowns um, in North Carolina and being in a state, he was with a bunch of friends in a place that didn't have lockdowns and he's having a beer. And he, um, uh, and, and he tweeted, uh, Massa, whatever the na name of the governor was, um, uh, let my people go. Um, and apparently that was uh, so uh, referring to lockdowns as being like bondage, it, it w was basically a joke. Um, and immediately in, in, in that absolutely crazy year of 2020, uh, the students went after him to try to get him fired. Now, since he'd actually already previously sued and won um, against UNCW, they didn't want to go back into court because they lost last time they fought, fought Mike. So they gave him a severance, not even like an insanely good severance, but but he got a severance. And meanwhile, in June of 2020, we're flooded with, with professors asking for fires help. We were completely overwhelmed. We got as many cases in June of 2020 as we used to get in an entire year. And I saw that Mike was one of them. And I, and I was like, you know what? Mike is... He's super confident. He'll be fine. I'll check on him basically last. And I, I re regret that now um, because I, I didn't get I wasn't able to check in with him on the phone until about mid-July of 2020. Um, and he was not doing well. Uh, there are still people coming to his house. There were people, you know, uh, uh, calling him on the phone. He, he filed a police report because like these people wouldn't let up. Um, and it's weird how activists can think like they can sound like bigots themselves because they were they were calling him saying that they saw his uh, daughter and son um, filleting black men at a, at, at a uh, at, at at protests and it's like wow that's really just messed up. Also, he doesn't have a daughter and son, so at least he, um, and Mike didn't sound like he was doing real well. And there wasn't much I could do to help him because he'd already signed the severance, and he killed himself the next week. Um, and you know, that really hit me. I mean, like, I 
I got into CBT because of my own struggles with depression. Um, and yeah, I, I, and it was particularly ghoulish watching some people when they talked about Mike Adams' death, it was it, like, a, you know, BuzzFeed and all these other places covered it, just, you know, offensive professor kills self, you know. And, and some of them were even more ghoulish about it. So there was a professor um, who we helped in another case who was basically like, you know, don't worry, you know, you shouldn't be so upset about your friend. And it's like, I shouldn't be so upset about a human being killing himself after being canceled. It, it, it was um, – it and, and it reveals – one of the things that I, one of the reasons why this book can't be a crowd pleaser in the same way Coddling the American Mind can be. Uh, Coddling the American Mind was true to its subtitle. We believed a lot of the problems in Coddling the American Mind were uh, good intentions but bad ideas. People meaning well and, but at the same time, the, the, creating problems by having, you know, bad wisdom. But in cancel culture, even though people tell themselves that I'm standing up for the little guy and that basically I'm doing this for a larger abstraction of social justice, usually for an idea of abstract people who might be, might, might be hurt or harmed, that they give themselves a green light to be as cruel and ruthless against people as possible. And so this idea that kind of like there's something compassionate or there's some kind of... It, it, it's, it's good versus evil, Greg. So, you know, exactly. like anything is allowed. Yeah. So yeah, that that uh, you know that that one that one uh, stays with me. Yeah, reading it was difficult, and uh, and you could tell how painful it was for you to even recount it. Uh, that that's one of the things, and it could be that I'm influenced in a particular way because I know some of the uh, folks who have uh, been victims of cancel culture. I don't know them the way you know them. I mean, it sounds like you you actually you know are, are literally standing side by side with them, um, but but. Hundreds of professors. I mean, those are human beings with families and lives. And, and academia is an environment where it's not easy just to pick up and go someplace else. You know, like anything that happened to you at your last campus is going to follow you to the next campus. If you're in administration, you're like, am I really going to take a risk on this person when there are probably like 50 people right behind them uh, with similar qualification levels that will invite no controversy if I decide to hire them? And But that's also one of the things, one of the subtler points that we make in the book that's really important. Even if you're sure you'll never be canceled in your life, and by the way, you shouldn't be uh, sure, but even if you think this will never affect you, people really need to get, this is devastating to people's trust in experts. And, here, and here's why. That when people see situations like Carol Hooven, you know, who, um, who was a, pr a professor at Harvard, she went on Fox News and she said in a very compassionate way about, uh, about all issues relating to trans that, you know, you should be compassionate, you should use people's pronouns, you should be understanding, but biological sex is real and we can't um, pretend that it's not. And immediately there was a campaign by a DEI officer and, um, to get her you know, uh, to, to get her punished, there was there was a um, uh, there there was an attempt to get her uh, get her canceled. Students refused to work in her class, which effectively shut down her class. And we don't even count that as a successful cancellation attempt because she just was forced out in in, in her own words. We actually just got to see her two nights ago um, by just the, the the nastiness of watching friends betray you and not stand by you. So she she she, she left uh, Harvard. But this destroys trust in expertise because when people look at this, like, okay, someone just said something, seemed to, seemed to have a reasonable point, and that person kind of lost their career for it. How can I trust experts to be objective on this stuff if they know that they, the 
that the pressure is all on, you know, say the uh, on the hot button issues, you know, agree with consensus, say the popular thing, say the thing that actually we want you to say right now. And when people are watching this, and the thing is, the expert could actually be right, but you you shouldn't blame the public when they're when uh, when they're looking at this, going, okay, I know that you, I'm not even sure you tell me what the truth was because the, all the incentives are on the side of say the thing that won't get you canceled. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree that it's eroding trust uh, and that the institutional incentives of administrators are just very, very perverse, uh, where if you can imagine the administrator saying, hey, I'm going to defend this person that everyone's attacking, uh, then you also are guilty of having this offensive idea. You must also be anti-trans or anti-black or whatever the accusation uh, that the person you're defending is guilty of. Uh, and so you look at it and say, well, shoot, like what, what's in, in my interest? Uh, I think universities are ripe for this because uh, of like a, a real lack of uh, incentive for you to try and do the right thing. It's like everyone, it's what Ricky just said. It's like, look, I can sympathize with this and agree with you, but please don't record that we had this conversation <laughs> because... Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, I, I come from an academic family. I'm actually the academic runt of the litter in, uh, in my family. My uh, grandfather was a professor. My uncle was a professor. My father became a professor. My brother is a professor. And so I'm a oh. crushing disappointment to my family in that <laughs> I don't have a PhD. <laughs> and I'm not a professor. But, there, but there's like, a, a, like I have a ton of academics in my circle. And they, they tell me similar things, by the way. They say, hey... Um, I saw someone lose their career, so now I am going to steer away from that a as much as possible. A and if you know how much work academics put into <laughs> like their, their careers, it is nuts. I mean, I I uh, I consider myself a hardworking fellow, <laughs> and, and I see what uh, what what academics do, and it, it's a whole other level of just. I end up like painstaking labor over a period of years and years to get into this perch. And then administrators often are former academics themselves. Um, so there's this incredibly hierarchical environment, shall we say, uh, that, that people, and, uh, and in those environments, I think it becomes much harder to go against the grain. 
Yeah, not to mention that there's also just a growing number of administrators and positions and offices, period. And oftentimes now it's like there's there's a whole new DEI bureaucracy at, on a campus. And often they're very young new hires that are highly ideological as well. So they might not even be sensitive to professors in the, in the same way as somebody who traditionally may have ra- risen in the ranks to a more prestigious administrator spot. And yet they wield a ton of power over them, which is really frightening. And I, I mean, I saw at NYU my in my time there, the amount of like bureaucratic tripwires that were placed around campus in terms of like, even like I, I show up my first day, I have to go and pick up my ID from the public safety office to get into all the buildings. And on the back, it's like, here's the phone number for 911. If you have an emergency, here's the student health center. Here's our um, like mental health hotline, which is actually sadly something that's I think needed in college campuses today. And here's the bias response hotline. I'm like, what the heck is that? And I looked into it and it turns out that quite literally, it's just like, if you feel that somebody crossed a line or something was offensive that you can call them, which sounds as though I'm, I'm like somehow downplaying perhaps there is, I mean, it's a progressive university in lower Manhattan, but perhaps there are instances of legitimate bias. There are administrators that you can certainly go to and that's amply available. And yet we had a hotline and the school published its own internal data and it was something north of two thirds of the complaints rose to the threshold of somebody calling in and saying, this is an example that they gave of like the category of someone coming in and saying that there, there were not diverse enough um, faces in the student or the the advertisements of NYU of students that they were photographing in the, in the advertisements and the school came out and said, this is what the majority of these reports are. So basically, and they were on the back of the bathroom stall too. We had little posters, the bias response hotline. And it was essentially the school saying like, you were so, so fragile and so able to be wounded by words that we need to create a hotline for you to call into. And this is such an actively, apparently hostile environment that you're going to be transgressed. And I mean, I don't understand how, how as a freshman walking in, not really knowing what the kids in your classes are going to be like, or maybe having heterodox ideas or coming from a different background. I mean, it's literally just saying like, there's an institutionalized way in which like your words can be used against you where, where you might get in trouble or called in for something that you say that might be an artful. And I, I mean, it's just like a, a very, um, creepy sort of dystopian world that these, these administrators sometimes create and trying, I think genuinely to, to protect kids. And yet at the same time, it creates this environment where it just feels like even the school itself is weaponized against your, your free speech and, and is hostile to it. Yeah, and 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 I really that that's I mean I, I mentioned the, the the subtitle you know of, of coddling, but ours, ours for this one is cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. But the undermining of trust in cancel culture really can't be emphasized enough. And this is in informal ways, like I mentioned before, the idea that one of your friends you know can turn you in you know for something that you Snapchatted is, is a very real you know fear. Um, you know we talk about a case where. Someone, you know, lost their admission to uh, Kansas State University because someone had been, you know, holding on to a Snapchat uh, video um, that, uh, for, for, for years and revealed it just, you know, just at the time um, that she, she was admitted to school. But that undermines interpersonal trust, which is horrifying. Um, it's, uh, and, but it also, you know, it, it, it also undermines um, uh, things like academic freedom because 
when you ask professors, are they self-censoring? The answer is, I mean, and this is another way to compare it to the, to McCarthyism. There was a survey conducted of whether or not professors were self-censoring um, in 1954, I think. Um, pretty large sample. And the number was about 9% of professors said they were self-censoring due to the hostile political climate. That's really bad. That's one out of 10 professors saying that they are self-censoring. That's not good for an academic environment. When we did this um, and we asked them, you know, are you self-censoring in class? Are you self-censoring uh, online? Are you self-censoring? And, and, our, and we were clear our definition wasn't just like not calling people fat kind of self-censoring, like you're withholding your actual beliefs. Um, and it was 90% um, of, of, of professors, you know, say, say that they're self-censoring. And when you have institutions where it's like, oh, everybody, you know, uh, this is this is a marketplace of ideas. But by the way, here's the number where you can secretly call in your professor and make his life hell or possibly get him fired um, if he says something that pisses you off. And looking at the polling, I mean, something like 70-something percent of both conservative and liberal students thought that professors, you know, should get in trouble or should be reported for saying offensive things in class. We've we've uh, we've got a long way to go. That 90 percent number is shocking, but not wholly surprising um, so you talk about these institutions. Uh, all right. I think most people would cop to the fact that, hey, there's something going on at college campuses. But it leaves college campuses, and then it heads to yes. media organizations. It heads to nonprofits and NGOs. Uh, it heads to corporations. I'm going to, to uh, look at media and nonprofits because I think there it's particularly strong. Uh, I was talking to Yasha Monk, whom you probably know in our, our friendly yeah. work. Um, so, uh, and he and I, um, commiserated about how we know these nonprofits that have completely been subsumed by internal turmoil because the staffers come in and then start agitating for better behavior and on the part of the managers, um, as opposed to doing whatever the organization is supposed to do. And in, in many cases, these are left-leaning organizations, uh, and this was particularly prevalent in 2021, uh, uh, 2020, 20, like this last several years, which should have been a very, very busy time for a lot of these organizations. And uh, a majority of these leaders, they actually said to me that like uh, there was a leader um, who said that their number one criteria when they're interviewing new hires is, is this person going to try and get me fired in the, in the, the, the next uh, you know, 12 months? Uh, and, and so they're, they're kind of uh, living in fear of their own staff. Yeah, I I hear that all the time from um from even coworkers that are like the we're we apparently waltz in us Gen Zers is like these like little tyrants that are also very confusing and send like very bizarre Slack messages that apparently are very cryptic. I've been called out for that as well. But I you know there's one example that I think is the most compelling of a, a business leader being able to stand up to this very effectively, which was what Coinbase did, which was effectively say like draw a line in the sand and say, we are not going to be a political organization. We are not going to take up any partisan positions one way or another as an organization. And if that's a problem for you, then step back and, and you can, you can leave. And I was surprised to hear that 5% of them actually, their employees actually did. And like, that's a filtering mechanism. I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable stance to take as a business leader. Who's not like running anything even vaguely ideological besides like, do you have faith in blockchain, I suppose. But like, it's shocking to me that one in 20 people even still thought that it was so offensive to them that, that they wouldn't be taking a stand on contentious political issues that they wanted to walk away. But I'm 
quite sure that those would be the 5% of people that you probably didn't want to work for you in the first place. So I, I find that to be a remarkable story and statistic. But even Netflix recently, I think, also um, came out pretty solidly in saying, like, we're going to publish things that might make you uncomfortable after the Dave Chappelle um controversy. And like, if that's a problem for you, then this might not be the right place for you. And I think that what I've kind of witnessed from afar is, is this like appeasement of these, these young people waltzing in and and wanting to tear everything down or just being a little bit afraid of them and saying, Oh, we'll just let that, like they can just have this one thing, or we'll just put out this one statement that we're not really totally sure about to the point where it got so out of control that it like, we're, we're at a moment where it's like, this, it's it's our way or the highway, and I think that more business leaders need to lean into that attitude for sure. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's one of these things that like after coddling came out, we wanted to have a chapter on uh, the trends we talk about in coddling uh, hitting the business world because we knew it was happening. We just ran out of time to, to have it. John was constantly uh, tweeting about kind of like oh, I really wish we could have gotten that in. It's like yeah, no, it's fair, but we had to hand it in sometime. Um, and after coddling came out, we heard from business leader after business leader. And I'm in the nonprofit space, and I've definitely, you know, <clears throat> seen potential hires, you know, who, uh, when you even in a free speech organization, that when you dig a little bit deeper, you're like, oh, but your attitude is essentially that y- you will be the speech police in the organization, and wh- the way Fire's been able to handle that, whether that is that we have a commitment to having politically diverse staff. It is extremely important to us to have actual liberals and conservatives working together. Um, and actually, you know, um, the staff does de- lean more to the left, um, but at the same time, having a healthy desire to have people you disagree with to work with is, is something that's a, that's a um, commonly shared value that we all take extremely seriously. But I kept on also hearing about how this was utterly paralyzing cause-based nonprofits. Um, I had a friend who worked uh, after Coddling came out. She said, I want to have a word with you. And I'm like, oh, boy. Um, this is actually my wife's friend. Um, and I was like, I'm going to get ripped the new one. Um, but it actually turned out she she was the head of a nonprofit that did direct services stuff, like actually going out and helping people you know, in the real world directly. And it was completely paralyzed by the new hires who thought everything had to be about the culture at the office as opposed to helping the people that they were helping. And meanwhile, I'm not going to be like someone who – every time I, I was told this by either a business uh, a, a profit or for-profit leader, it always be followed with, but you can't tell anybody about it. And it was really frustrating. So that's one of the reasons I'm eternally thankful to Ryan Grimm at The Intercept for writing an article called The Elephant in the Zoom, also a great title, um, where he talks about how this is paralyzing you know, uh, organizations, like this, this internal kind of cancel culture that makes it uh, you know, kind of a climate of fear. And I still think that is present, um, in a, particularly in a lot of the big foundations. I hear that a lot. Um, and it's dysfunctional. I also feel like the more that I, I've i become just like now, at first on the college campus, I was the human receptacle for everyone's politically incorrect secrets. And now it seems to be like people from just spheres of life that I've popped up on their radar and they confide these things in me. And I feel like we're at a moment, like it, it feels very akin to the, the Harper's letter um, coming out and saying like, we don't all, all of us at the same time are going to say that we don't we, – this very innocuous statement that we believe in free speech and pluralism and, and being able to have conversations and not tear people down. And I feel like there's so much 
secret momentum in in so many people feeling the same way whether i mean they they might not agree on contentious issues but just agreeing on the fact that that we've drifted so far away from a free speech culture which is what we advocate for in a book that like i look at um and recently harvard there was a free speech alliance of professors that came forward and there were a hundred of them at the same time who said we're establishing this organization we think this is a problem on campus and I, I I mean, I wrote about it for the New York Post. The article got quite a lot of attention, and yet none of them really got personally attacked for it because there's strength in numbers and courage is contagious, and they all kind of did it at the same time rather than the one person getting torn down and then everyone else kind of cowering away from actually, you know, giving them any support. So I feel like we are at a cultural moment where there's the numbers are huge of people who agree with these very fundamental American values, and the the tyranny of the minority I think is is a really concerning dynamic that I'm, I'm watching play out. But like, I, it's, I hear it all the time from people in every single kind of industry that like, we're scared of these very small, very loud squeaky wheels in society. And I'm, I'm like starting to feel like we need to just all come down together and say like, no, this is, this is enough. Like we, this can't continue. And that's something I'm proud of with the book is we offer a lot of solutions. About a third of it is talking about ways to improve parenting, K through 12, how to keep your corporation out of the culture war, reforms that you could do in higher ed. But one thing that we, just like we regretted not being able to fit um, something uh, that we really were passionate about into the book uh, that's really relevant to you, Andrew, is we think that one of the ways, one of the best ways to really have a free speech culture is to work together to solve specific hard problems, not just a consciousness raise on the evil uh, evils of the world, but be like, how, what do what's the brass tacks on how we do things, like address police abuses, what, or uh, or on big energy solutions, um, or on any of the or any of the world's problems, and I think that uh, we talk in the book. We have a lot of uh, sections on the ridiculousness of how cancel culture is part of a dysfunctional rhetorical tactic to win arguments without actually winning arguments. Um, and we, we, we spend about the, the middle third of the book, we go through all the different ways that we've learned to legitimize arguing around the actual argument people are making and making it all about ad hominem, all about attacking the person. And then that will get you nowhere other than to, you know, have a pyrrhic victory over individuals or ruin a couple of people's lives, but still not getting anywhere close to the truth. But we have real problems to solve. And the best way to solve these problems is to have meaty, meaningful discussions that are focused on the actual topic of the discussion. So solving problems is one of the ways that you actually teach free speech culture. Yeah, I, I thought it was his. I thought it was hysterical, uh, the barricades, um, because it, it seemed so familiar. Uh, and so yes. I, 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 and, and these were the kind of cheap tactics that are used uh, against folks uh, if you say something disagreeable. So I'm just going to go through some of the barricades so people have a sense of what I'm talking about. But I, I was like, oh, yeah, that does happen. One, is the speaker conservative? Two, what's the speaker's race? Three, what's the speaker's gender? Four, what's the speaker's sexuality? <laughs> you know, and, and, and we've all kind of seen this. It's like, oh, you can't say anything because, you know, you're like a straight white male. Um, can the speaker be accused of being phobic? Are they guilty by association? Did they lose their cool? Did they violate a thought-terminating cliche? <laughs> Which also is funny, but I mean, that is pretty much where we are. 
darkly hint something else is really going on. <laughs> like, like, like there, there's, um, and, and I laugh because they're all so familiar. Um, they get used was, all the time. And it, it was a joy to see them just laid out and uh, cataloged in, in this way. Um, uh, and I love how smartly you went about it. So the efficient rhetorical fortress is uh, the, the way that people on the right are able to dodge arguments. Um, and, of course, they also have the minefield and the obstacle course that they can fall back on. But they can also dismiss you if you're a liberal um, or on the left. Um, and that and that's the thing is you don't actually have to – for none of these, do you actually have to be on the left. You just have to be able to be accused of that, and that's practically anybody. It's also if you're a journalist, if you're an expert, um, and for the MAGA wing, that if you disagree or dislike Trump. Like that, that, that's a way to – you know. I, I think it's funny that we actually get more hate mail from – pro-Trump people about coddling the American mind, because apparently in our discussion of, of Charlottesville, we weren't you know, sufficiently nice to him. But the perfect rhetorical, rhetorical fortress is just like a wonder of construction. It was something uh, you know designed in academia. So it's just layer after layer, largely of identity-based uh, dodges. But one thing I, I want to be really clear about is we did the whole demographic analysis you know, to, to work out like how much of the population do you eliminate when you eliminate uh, white conservatives, when you uh, white people and conservatives, when you eliminate straight people, white conservatives, what as you go down, it gets to a smaller and smaller group of people that are, you know, uh, that, that escape that that uh, that the dismissal. And we worked it out that it, by the end of it, you're up down to about 0.4 percent of the population of the country. Uh, but here's here's the kicker. Um, and, and that's the phobic. Uh, it's, uh, if you say the wrong thing, still doesn't matter. Like, if, even if you're right in that 0.4% of, of, of the most intersectional person who ever lived, if you say that if you have the wrong opinion, you are still dismissed, you are accused of internalized misogyny, internalized transphobia, it, um, it's, it's perfect, uh, in the sense that it can dismiss anybody. And the one of the saddest, but also sort of darkly funniest part of this is when we Talk to a lot of the black uh, conservative and black moderate authors that we know um, and ask them, have you ever been told you weren't really black for an opinion that you had? Every single one of them was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's kind of a common thing. Um, and John McWhorter talked about a reporter after he said some dissenting things saying, oh, so uh, do you consider yourself black? And he was blown away by that. And Coleman Hughes put it really, really well. He said, I'm constantly being told that the most important thing to, as to my credibility is the color of my skin. Um, but when I have a dissenting opinion that they don't like, I am told I'm not really black. So it's perfect. Like that, there's no way like it, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. And that's what it reveals a lot of this to be essentially a really complicated system for running out the clock and protect, protecting dogma not people. Um, it's to, it, it's to never actually have to, you know, argue, um, about the substance of what someone's talking about. So I, I think we've done a pretty good job of laying out why this is important, why it's, uh, destructive, why people should be concerned about it. So you are actually very constructive in the last third of the book you talk about the various ways that we can address it as individuals the way that institutions can address it uh so let's talk about what people can do if they are convinced they say okay guys i agree cancel culture is a problem i too want to stand up and say that and provide cover for other people who agree with me that turns out it's most of us that are not fans of this thing 
Yeah, we have a, a number of reform chapters, including how higher education um, should definitely become a less kind of centralized and, and one route sort of world and that we should be, you know, I, I didn't finish my degree and Greg changed his degree requirements at fire in order to hire me actually. And I think society needs to wake up to the fact that we can't just have a, a single, um, very cancel culture prone institution producing all the leaders in, in, in every corporation and every, um, government role. And so I think that that's one important solution that we put forth. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier on the corporation front as well. And what to me is, um, the most interesting is our conversation about K to 12 education and also parenting, because I think a lot of this gets to, this is kind of my Gen Z bias coming out, but a lot of this gets to the fact that I, I think that there's a, confusing and seemingly contradictory phenomenon of young people right now where it seems like we're the ones that are doing this the most, which is true, but it's not most of us. And most of us do. I think it's something like 80% of Gen Z say that they have a negative view of cancel culture higher than any other generation. Most of us don't like this. And I, you know, it, it bothered me for a while. I'm like, why, why can't we kind of just overhaul this tyranny of the minority? Why aren't more people coming out? And it's because like I, my own experience, I just did not understand the, the fundamental principles of free speech and classical liberalism and how profound that is and how delicate of a balance that is until I did my leave of absence from NYU. And I actually started reading on my own and I read John Stuart Mill and I read the founding documents and I was like, whoa, this is like, I've been taking this for granted. And so I think that there's a, an impetus on, on restoring our K to 12 education to actually teach these principles of free speech and pluralism and why our inheritance is so profound and why it's so delicate and why it's our civic duty to uphold it. And also for parents to lead by example and to be very deliberate in, in raising a generation of kids that can actually return to these, these nonpartisan fundamental American values. And so to me, it's just, it's just a matter of activating the minority or the majority of young people who would like to see a change, who would like to live in a world where the dumb thing that they say as a teenager does not ruin the rest of their lives. And pretty soon, and we're going to have to have a ceasefire on that front because Everybody that's starting a job today had an iPhone when they were 10. So we've all done and said really <laughs> stupid things. So I think, I think it's just a matter of actually like, like allowing the, the fire of like free speech and, and pluralism and democracy to burn again by just actually telling young people like, yes, you're right that something's wrong. And here's where we've gone awry. And here is how the founding fathers and here is how American, American legal doctrine actually has a path forward for us to, to get back on track. I call it a culture of grace and tolerance. And what Ricky just said about the 10-year-olds with the iPhones really puts a point on it. I mean, who among us yeah. has not uh, said something uh, regrettable uh, in private to our friends uh, via text? I mean, that's everybody. When I see someone get slammed for that, I'm like, that is seriously messed up. Um, and then mm -hmm. even as someone who, uh, you know, is, is on social media uh, and has a you know, microphone in my face or a camera in my face all the time. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, what are the odds of someone saying something, um, you know, off color, subject to interpretation, even mistaken or wrong? 
over time, it's like a hundred percent. You know what I yeah. mean? So, so, yeah. uh, so we, we can't make it so that folks, uh, feel like they're taking their career into their hands. Anytime they make any kind of statement, then you wind up with this like very, very strange culture of conformity and cowardice. And that's going to end up serving us up to something very, very dark. Um, which by the way, I now see that that's, probably the most likely path. I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, you know, like I'm, I'm like you, Greg, I'm like temperamentally optimistic, even if I think things are uh, getting increasingly demented. Um, but I have a theory as to how we can break the fever and it's by, Ooh, everyone, go on. and it's by everyone buying this book. It's by everyone <laughs> following Ricky and you and Jonathan Haidt and John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes, because so much of this, in my opinion, is folks seeking positive affirmation and social reinforcement. And you, you're, you get mm -hmm. points for slamming people. You get points for saying like, hey, we're better than them. Uh, look, look out how venal and corrupt they are. Um, but if that stuff doesn't get you clicks and likes and everyone just rolls their eyes and is like, whatever, and uh, really actual... Uh, thinking and discussion is where all of the attention goes. Uh, I, I think that's the answer. Um, and I think your book's a big part of the answer because you lay out an intellectual case in a way that I have not seen anywhere else. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. That means the world. Please do get a copy of this brand new book, The Canceling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott, cancel culture undermines trust, destroys institutions, and threatens us all. It actually does. But there is a solution, and the solution is to uncancel your own mind and uh, tell your friends, hey, it's okay to say and think certain things, and we should all be able to accept each other based upon our shared humanity, perhaps our Americanness, perhaps our uh, fallibility. Uh, but there are... It, our ancient values in that direction, and this fever will break. It is a moment in time. Um, I can't believe that it's bigger than the Red Scare, just because I remember reading about the Red Scare in uh, my history textbooks. And I look forward to a time when people can read about this in their history textbooks as like, remember that crazy period in American life when all these people were getting canceled? Thank goodness we put that behind us. Yeah. Well, and the big difference between this and the Red Scare was that there was reason to be really freaked out in the early 50s. American and British spies actually helps, you know, um, super Hitler, Stalin, someone who actually killed more people than, he, than even Hitler, get the bomb. And, and what, one of the reasons why cancel culture is so weird as a mass censorship event is that usually mass censorship events happen when there's a national security crisis of the highest measure, like right before a war or when people are paranoid about, you know, like the, the idea of, of, of uh, if I was around when I suddenly discovered that Stalin got the hydrogen bomb, I'd be pretty freaked out. Meanwhile, we don't, you didn't have a comparable thing going on in cancel culture. So it, it makes it all, and, and, and back then the law wasn't even clear yet. Whereas now the law is very protective of freedom of speech and it's still happening. So I think we're, I think we're going to be looking back at this with, wow, when people first got on social media in mass numbers, it drove everybody insane. Hopefully there will be a return to sanity. If there is, you too will be a big part of it. How can people follow you and keep up with your work aside from buying this book? Uh, thefire.org. Um, I also have a sub stack called the Eternally Radical Idea, but the fire, the, you know, check out thefire.org, please.
And I'm on Twitter and my New York Post column is uh, popping up in the paper here and there. So keep an eye out for it. Ricky Schlott is going to outdo all of us. Thank you both so oh, yeah. much. <laughs> and, and congratulations on, on this, uh, this book. It's a real achievement. Thank you. Thank you.